When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I'm 22. I'm five foot two, I suppose. Five foot five. <laughs> I'm five foot five, <laughs> and um, I have blonde hair and I have blue eyes. I'm very thin, <laughs> very small. I'm the mother of Emma, who suffers with epidermolysis bullosa. It's a very rare condition. There are very few in Ireland. Um, approximately seven or eight left. In the last five years, five have died with this illness or illnesses related to it. And it's a tough life. I suppose my shoulders would start and then it would be my arms. From my shoulders to my arms, I suppose, would be bandaged. And then there's a couple of areas on my back. And then from my thighs right down to my toes are bandaged. Emma's form is a very severe form. Um, her skin breaks down at the slightest touch. It's compared to a butterfly wing because it's so fragile. They're raw red, like they'd be pure redness, like, and it's just, it wouldn't be like, say your kind of skin where it'd be white and normal, it'd be raw red and there'd be open wounds, like, and they could be big or small, and, it could be anything like my knees, they're just pure red. They won't be white or anything. They're just red. So just cause from all the wearing down of them. When I was younger, if I did fall, my knees would be damaged, my nose would be damaged, and they're red now from that. It has to be, she has to be dressed. Those dressings have to be done every day on some of the wounds. And it's a life filled with pain. I can be in pain sometimes. It depends on the wounds, how sore they are. Sometimes they are, and I just take painkillers just to, to drown it out kind of thing. It's just a throbbing kind of pain. It's it's just, you know it's there, you know there's something there and it's not right and it shouldn't be there. Like some sores now I, I can't feel because I'm just used to them by now, I think. <laughs> but some sores there are so bad that they would just throb and throb and throb. I just take painkillers. What she goes through, I go through. It's it's hard on all the family because we see her suffering. We know she's suffering. There's very little we can do to ease the pain, only do the dressings and give her painkillers. But she knows herself that she can't lead the life she'd love to lead. She doesn't have the life that other girls of her age. She's 22. She can't put on sandals and paint her toenails. She can't wear a miniskirt. She can't go out in large crowds. She has to be very careful because if she's walked on or stepped on, the skin is torn from her leg. She can't shake hands because if somebody gives her a rough shake hand, they could pull the whole skin off her hand. The skin has grown over my fingers and 
this, like since I was a baby, and when I was a, was a baby, my nails fell off on my hands and feet, and they just joined together. And then on my right hand, it's it's just closed in, kind of like a fist, so I can't hold a lot. I can hold a pen just about, and a spoon or a fork or whatever, but I can't straighten it out at all. It's just nearly like a fist now at this stage. So I had the option of going for surgery, but I don't like it. I don't want to, not yet. Not until I have to. I'm happy with, with how I am now. I don't need it. I'm, I can still write and I can still do everything I need to do. I've just adapted to it by now. Like, I just don't want to. I, just, I think I have enough sores. I think my fingers will be wrapped up in bandages then if I did go for surgery, and I, I don't want that either. <laughs> Everything was normal. We had, I had a very normal pregnancy. I did have one scare that I threatened to lose her. And I was told to stay in bed for a few days and stayed in bed for a few days and everything settled down. And we went right through the pregnancy with no more trouble, no more problems. I was very happy looking forward to, to, to our first child and great expectation, your, your first your firstborn child. Yeah. And... Um, I remember I was involved with Badminton hurling at the time, and we had a hurling match that particular evening. And I was hoping to get back to the hurling match, everything being okay, but that didn't happen. And I remember calling into a friend of mine, Badminton Kill, John Welsh, and telling him that there was a problem. And they understood it from there, you know. And but uh, before Emma was born, with great excitement, looking forward, wondering whether it was going to be a boy or a girl, or you know. She was born in Kilkenny Hospital and she once she was born she was taken straight from me. She was christened that day with tap, the, a priest came in and got tap water and blessed the tap water and christened her with the tap water and she was rushed straight to Crumlin Hospital by ambulance. So I didn't see her for four or five days till I was discharged from hospital because I had other difficulties as well so I couldn't come out of hospital quickly enough to see her but um, she was taken to Crumlin and my gynaecologist had said he had never seen anything like the illness. She had no skin in her hands and no skin in her feet completely raw. I remember the day, it was, it was a very warm day and it was June, 25th of June and um, it was sometime around one or two o'clock in the, in the afternoon she was born and um, when she was born, um, the doctors there didn't knew that there was something wrong, but they didn't think there was anything major. They, they mentioned to me that was more likely the solution was um, a skin graft. But I, when I saw um, Emma after she was born, there was something major wrong. I, I taught myself and they weren't, the doctors weren't seeing it. My husband then had to go to Crumlin and meet the doctors on his own because I couldn't go. And um, eventually, when the results came back, uh, and they did a biopsy and the results came back, and he was able to come back to me then and tell me what the problem was. But it was at the time it was very difficult for him because he was on his own and he was told on his own that she was going to die within the week that the, and that she would be better off if she did die because she was going to have no quality of life. And that was very tough for him, because he's a very quiet, sensitive person. And it was our first baby, and 
everybody around us was having babies and everything was per- everybody else had perfect children my sister was only after after having a baby six months previously and it was very tough to see everybody else with their children all healthy and this was our first child and we were so happy to be having our first baby and you know it was it was a very hard cross to bear but we got through it how how did this happen right you know it was uh, you know 99% of children are born are perfect and we never remember back in our living memories you know any of our relations or anything having uh, a problem like we were about to face so it was a bit of a shock and I won't say it was it was it wasn't a disappointment it was more a shock because we were expecting everything to be normal there was no indication in the previous nine months while Pat was pregnant that there was anything wrong as again as far as I recall she was in hospital I'd say for at least four to five months yeah yeah four to five months and um we used to visit on a regular basis and and as the months gradually progressed her skin seemed to to meet her skin seemed to have got deteriorated because of uh, possibly because of all the friction and all the handling handling that she, that was going on in Crumlin but basically they had no they had no cure for it they had no um solution to the problem it was just care she was wrapped really in cotton wool and her cot was surrounded by cotton blankets and cotton wool and even to we couldn't even actually lift her up so five to six months later possibly from pressure from both of us you know she was allowed home and we brought her home and it, we took her from there then we were petrified bringing her. I remember coming down in that car and looking back at her in the, in the... She was in a little pram, the cover of a pram, the top of a pram, and we were petrified. We didn't know what to do or what... You know, we just... I had been brought up and trained on how to look after her, but they really were in the dark as well as I was in the dark because they knew so little about the illness at the time, in in the hospitals even, you know, because it was so rare that they weren't able to... Take, much to help us either you know but we just we were in the dark and we just had to plod along as best we could and do the best we could you know for her but it was I couldn't describe to her how hard it was even going when she was in the hospital and we'd go up to see her and every time we'd see her she was she was getting worse and the, the nurses were doing their best but it was very even you know the way the nurse wears her her watch here in her on on her uniform i remember one day the nurse picked her up and she had her watch here and she tore all her skin with the watch the watch heat against her skin and tore all her skin so every time we went up different people were handling her they didn't understand even fingernails were tearing her skin she was wearing no clothes she had she wasn't able to wear clothes because her skin was breaking down and all different things were sticking to her skin and you'd have to pull them off and oh it was just horrendous I must say the first year or two were horrendous until we got into a routine and until we learned how to care for her and until then eventually she learned how to walk because when she was small she didn't understand the damage she was doing to herself 
And, she, you know, if, if she cried or she rolled around in the cot or whatever and banged her hands or banged her feet off the sides of the cot, she was tearing her skin. She was actually tearing holes in her skin almost, you could say. And you couldn't explain to her that age, you know, you can't kick the cot or you can't bang your hands off the cot or you, whatever. You just couldn't explain it to her until she was able to understand that she couldn't do things anymore that, that other people could do, you know. You know, I remember one time she fell off her bicycle and everything was torn, her hands, her feet, her knees, her face, the whole lot of the skin off the top of her nose, everything was gone. You wouldn't believe it. You'd have to actually see it happening to understand how much this, how important your skin is, first of all. I mean, the reason she has this is that she's missing a layer of skin. We have three layers, she's only two. So therefore, you know, the least touch can damage her. Even a label sticking on the back of her, if she bought a new T-shirt, if the label could scratch her skin and actually tear it. You know, so it's, it's, it's really very fragile. It was tough. It was tough because each day, you take each day as it come, as, as it came. Um, you didn't know what was around the corner. You didn't know... When, especially when she came home, you didn't know, um, for instance, uh, having gone through a day, the next day, it was completely different. There was always something new cropping up. I remember one day I was out, I was after coming back from playing a squash match, and I was met, Pat met me at the overhead in her hand, and she had a, a complete full blood blister in her mouth. It was like a balloon, as if there was a balloon just coming out of her mouth. And that was that was something new again. There was always something different. I won't say every day, but definitely every week, something happened that was different from the previous week to her skin. I don't think they ever sat me down and described EB to me I don't think they never needed to because from when I was very young you know you understand when you're growing up you know because this is like normal to me you know I I think of myself as normal you know because I've grown up with this so we've never really had you know a serious conversation about it because ever since I was younger I've understood what's wrong with me and I've understood I have to be careful and I had to do this and that and whatever else you know and I never needed to be told, look, you can't do this and you can't do that because I know my own limitations and boundaries. I know what I can and can't do. So they never needed to sit me down and, and tell me and describe to me what EB was like. I suppose when, it was, when I went to school, I think it was the first time I needed something different because I saw all these little kids and they could do whatever they wanted and, and play and mess. And I had to be careful because... My mum came at me and for the first couple of days and looked after me and there was nobody else there, so I knew that there was something different. And I think that was the first time, I suppose. Before she actually went to primary school, um, we had to inform all the parents of the children that were, there was going to be 30 in the class. And in those times, they didn't have classroom assistance. There was no such thing as that. And I considered actually going to school and sitting with her for the first um, week or so. Now, originally she did go to play school, which was a, a kind of a good introduction for her, and she was in play school for two years. And um, 
So a lot of the kids that went from play school went on to primary school with her. So at least they were kind of familiar with her and they knew that they would have to be careful. But it was more so, I was more concerned. I knew Emma could cope with national school. It was how the other kids would cope with her and how they would understand that they couldn't be pushing against her. They couldn't trip her up or do any, you know, they just couldn't come in contact with her at all, if possible, you know, and just just about to sit beside her. But she did have a, a few friends that, that understood and, you know, minded her and took care of her. But they could play and they didn't have to worry about, you know, falling over and hurting themselves and they could go outside and play football or play whatever sports they wanted and I couldn't. I could not I was always kept inside. Because if I fell over then the skin would come off me and I'd be hurt and I'd have to be bandaged up and probably brought home from school. So Yeah, she had a very normal first communion day. Pictures there somewhere. There it is there. Yeah, she she wore her dress and she wore her little ballet, little little soft shoes. We did have a job trying to get into the, the footwear were the problem because um, it was very difficult to get footwear that she would be able to wear that wouldn't hurt her feet because she used to always wear slippers. Originally, she always wore slippers in school everywhere. So footwear was a problem. But we got a little tiny little pair of ballet, little slippers, and she wore those. And First Communion went off fine. Yeah. She went in with the glass and... She got through it fine, no problem. Like, even books, I had two sets of books, like school books. I had two sets. I had one for school and then I had one at home because I couldn't. If I carried them on my back, it would have damaged my shoulders and it would have damaged my back, you know, the weight of it and everything. So I, I didn't have many books. I just brought them in school. And I suppose I didn't really eat a lunch because I have problems with my throat and I didn't have that. And, you know, pee, I never did pee. I always watched as they did pee and, you know. That would be the one thing that I always said, we, we would live a normal life. We wouldn't be any different to anybody else. We would go places and we would do things. And oftentimes I brought her shopping and people would follow us around the shop looking at her. But I just, sometimes I, I would get an angry and annoyed and just ask the person, what are you looking at? You know, sometimes I remember bringing her to um, a show pantomime and there were kids in front of us and the whole time the kids kept looking back at her because I obviously she was a little bit different and eventually I just said the show is in front of you not behind you because it just sometimes it can get to you and I get really angry because I just don't understand why people can stare why they have to stare if I see somebody with a dreadful birthmark on their face I certainly would look the other way. I would not stare at them or follow them and ask them what happened to them. But people have asked, actually come up to me and asked me what has happened to her. Did she get burned? You know, and a lot of people just don't want to take, even if I just say, no, it's a skin condition. You know, they just say, but, you know, how could it, you know, is it eczema or what is it? You know, and the people are so nosy, they just want to know more. You know, but I find that difficult. I find people staring very difficult because I just feel that we're doing our own thing, we're getting on with our life, we're minding our own business and I don't understand why people can't mind their own business either. 
you would you would understand children a little bit, but I I cannot understand adults to do that. I just cannot. I think it's it's very hurtful, and it really it, I just feel as if it's it's a knife going through my heart because I know and she she feels it. You know she she knows people are looking at her and she you know what can you do. You know, she just when she sees people staring at her, she just looks up at me as if to say, "What am I going to do, or what am I going to say? Will they just go away?" <laughs> but it, it is hard. But you just have to get over it, don't you? Rise above it. I try to live my life as normal as I can. You know, I'm very independent. I always have been, and I've always wanted that, and I always wanted to act like be like. A normal person, if you say that, you know, to act like there's nothing ever wrong with you. And, and I try to do that every day. You know, you fight through everything and, and I do whatever I can. You know, I've, I've come through so many things. I've done, done secondary school and done my leaving cert and I've moved out of home and I've gone to college and I've done so many things that, you know, I can, you know, and I've proved to everyone that I, I want to be able to do that and I can do it. And I do try and live normal, life as normal as possible. It's um, one in four chance of having other children with the same illness. So we were told not to have any more children. And that was tough. We found that difficult. But eventually we did have Catherine after a 10-year gap. And we were very happy that everything worked out and that she was healthy and well. You know, and it was so easy to look after her in comparison with, you know, with Emma because... Like with nappies and with bottles, I mean, you just threw her a bottle and she was able to drink it. Whereas with Emma, you had to, you know, have her in your arms and you had to, you know, the bottle, from soaking the bottle, she used to get a blister in her tongue, which would fill, filled with blood. And it used to stretch back along her tongue, into, down into her throat. And the fear of her choking with this big thing that was actually growing. And every time you'd look at this blister in her mouth and it was getting bigger and bigger. And we were so scared, you know, that it was actually going to go back so far her throat because it spread. And we were just so afraid that it was going to choke her. That having Catherine and having no worries, it was just a walk in the park, really. You know, it was so easy. So she didn't realise how, how, how easy it was. You know, it was great. Till I was 10, I always said I want a sister or a brother. I always said it. And I could never understand why I couldn't have one, you know. But when I did have one, she was great. And I was really happy I got someone. So I remember the day she was, well, the morning after she was born, that I got to go and see her. It was great. I remember when she was born, it was being occasions as well. I remember Limerick were playing the all Ireland final in 92. And I think we rushed to Dublin that evening with oncoming traffic all traffic coming from Cork Park but she was born around two o'clock I think in the morning and I was actually present at the birth I remember when Emma was born I was actually the nurse at the this cleared me out of the room she said go away out now for half an hour but in Dublin I actually in Hollow Street I actually stayed for the birth and and just to see her being born was something special and Again, you'd, I knew straight away that everything was okay, you know, because she was just perfect, you know. And um, they didn't tell us that, of course. They waited for tests to be done, but everything was fine in that case. And that was it.
times. Very, very exciting. Yeah, yeah, very exciting times, yeah. yeah. And Emma was very excited. Um, yeah. Yeah, because we brought her in the car. The following day, yeah. Following that night, she oh, came yeah. up in the car yeah. with us and we dropped her at my sister's and we went in, into the hospital. She wanted to come to the hospital with us. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't bring her. She was so excited and I rang my sister and my sister told her, I think it was sometime in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. went in and told that, yeah. her that she had a new sister. She was so pleased. She was delighted it was a girl. I remember, I know I stayed in my aunt's house, my aunt Angela's house up in Dublin, and it was at night time and Mummy and Daddy, well, Mummy and Daddy, yeah, went into the hospital when she was having, when she was in, Mummy was in labour. And I remember being woken up, I'd say about two o'clock or something, and my aunt was standing over me saying, you have a little sister. And I was like, I was all happy, and that was grand. And I woke up the next morning and ran into Daddy because he'd come home from the hospital that night. And I ran, and I was like, I want to go in and see, I want to go in and see. And it was great, I was really happy. I didn't even eat a breakfast or anything, I just went running, so I was really excited. I'd never even thought of her having EB or, you know, because I was so young, I'd say I didn't know if she would have EB or not. I didn't know there was a four-in-one chance. Now I do, but not when I was that age, I didn't know. So I was just excited to have a little sister. <laughs> she's like she's growing up. She's like she's my age, you know, the way she takes care of me and everything. I'd go to her after my parents if I needed something. Even though she's only 11, I think I would be able to be able to depend on her if something was wrong. Even if I couldn't walk out to the bathroom, I know she'd be able to help me. <laughs> so she's very good like that. Emma for, comes first in the family, first of all. She just, if something happens that she has to be in hospital, no matter what else is on, it has to be cancelled. You know, even last year now, we did have a bit of a crisis because they were both in hospital together. Catherine was in Port Leash Hospital having her appendix out and Emma was in James's Hospital having an iron infusion because her, her um, she was so low... And as well, she has osteoporosis, so she had to have her, her, her medication for her osteoporosis, which is done through a drip, so she has to have that done as well in hospital. So I, I used to sleep at night in Port Leash with Catherine because she didn't want to stay on her own. Then I'd go to Dublin in, in, in the daytime. So after the week, they were both a week in hospital. After the week, we just were absolutely wrecked. But as I say, Emma's illness comes first, and if anything else else is going on and she has to go to the hospital it has to be cancelled that's just the way it is she comes first I can't wash my hair myself I wash it in a sink or in, like put my head over the bath what mammy does it for me because I can't hold you know whatever like the shower hose or whatever just the you know, washing their hands, putting the shampoo around like that, so I won't be able to do that. So mummy does it for me all the time. Or the PA if I'm not at home. Like some people have a water bed or an air bed or something, but I just have a normal bed. And it's not too bad, but if I was, if I had to turn around, I have to wake up. I have to physically, because I, I can't turn around, just like roll around kind of thing, because the friction would hurt me from the bed so I have to kind of pick myself up and turn myself around the sun is worse than the rain I prefer to be cold or too hot because of all my bandages and everything it's like having two pairs of trousers on 
So um, I prefer to be raining in the coolness than in the sun because even with the sun, you know, I was in Florida there two years ago and I wasn't even in directly in the sun. I was in the shade and I was under a fan with mist coming out of the kind of thing. But even like I got a blister on my face and it was just my face is very good, it's very clear, you know, I'd rarely get marks in it. But I I was I was in bits when I saw the blister come because I thought my face was gonna be ruined from it. So yeah, I'd prefer the rain than the sun. I'd prefer it to be too cold and too hot. Definitely. I suppose you do in a way feel that it's kinda of your fault because I mean both myself and my husband have the faulty genes. I mean, it, nothing got to do with her. So therefore, it's our fault in a way, but I don't dwell on that. I mean, these things happen, and it's nobody's fault, really. At the end of the day, it's nobody's fault. And when you're dealt a blow like that, you just have to take it and get on with it. You can't go around and say it's your fault or my fault or anybody's fault. You just have to get on with it. What's the point in blaming somebody? What? What good will that give any? That won't give any relief to anybody by being able to say, "Well, it's your fault." That doesn't help. So there's no point in blaming anybody. It's just, it's just happened, and you just deal with it and get on with it. That's the way I look at it. They've been very positive about it as well, and they've always said, "You know, you can do this." And, you know, they've always wanted me to be independent as well. You know, when I told them I wanted to move out to college, everybody always said, you know, stay close to home, you know, don't go too far. But they were very good and they said, you know, they were very worried, of course, but they were like, if this is what you want to do, then we'll help you get through it. Well, with Emma being so independent, the fact that she's been two years down in Limerick, it does take um, a bit of pressure off your mind. It gives you a peace of mind that, you know, that in the future that she will be able to cope, you know, that she's capable of coping on her own. And um, and certainly with Catherine being around as well, that she does have a sister that she can always fall back on. Um, the biggest worry, I suppose, was how would she cope on her own? And she's proven that she can cope quite well. When I left for college in Limerick, it was my first time ever away from home. Like, I'd never left home. I'd never been away, even for a week or something, I'd never been away from my parents because I was so dependent on them. I, I never had anyone else looking after me. Um, I suppose I, just, I was never used to it. I always had mummy and daddy looking after me. I never needed anyone else. So it was a big change to move away from home. But I was very determined to move away, and I was, I was really looking forward to it. Um, but it was great, yeah. It was very good. So I had to get accommodation. I had to get a suitable accommodation because I had all this, all my bandages and I had my feed and I had my tablets and everything. So I had to get proper accommodation. And, you know, I I find stairs as well very difficult to go up and down. But so I had to get accommodation on the ground floor, floor for first and second year. I had accommodation on the ground floor. Um, so that was that. And then college was great. I had a great time. She got her first job in Dublin and Permanent TFB were great to take her on, you know, and they've looked after her any time she was being sick. They've given her time off and they've given her time off to go see her doctors in St James's. And it's been a huge change for her. She's staying in a flat in Dublin, about, well, with, with a group of girls, girls as well, mm-hmm. down the flat as well, complex with her. So it's been a big change, yeah? 
big difference that we feel. We miss her so much in the first place that the house is so quiet without her. But um, it's hard letting go. The first month was tough because I was so worried about her. You know, that something would happen to her or that she'd fall or she'd be pushed or she'd get hurt in some way in crowds of people, you know. But she survived it and sure she's nearly six months. She'll be there in six months in March, this coming March. And um, she's got through it and she's proved to us again that she can do it. You know, she's another milestone for her to have achieved this again. You know, because we just... I wasn't sure if she'd be able for her, to be honest. And still, I didn't want to hold her back. And I had said to Maliki, we'd give her a chance, let her go go and work there for a month. If she's not able for it, she can come home. There's no problem. In the back of my mind, I was praying that it would work out for herself, you know, just for her independence, if nothing else. And I'm so pleased that it has worked out for her because she deserves a chance and she deserves to have a life and have a bit of independence and not always be dependent on us for the rest of her life. At night, at whatever time I do go to bed, I get, I have a, a gastrostomy tube in my stomach because I can't eat. So I get plugged in, I get my medication at night time and I put it into the tube and then I get like a feed. It's kind of like basically like a drip and it's just, it's full of like nutrients and vitamins and whatever else that I need that I don't get during the day. And I get that overnight, and that runs all through the night. And then I get up in the morning, and whenever time that finishes, and I get up, and I, I wouldn't have anything to eat because I'm, it's like it's like having your breakfast, dinner, and tea, you know, all overnight. So I'd have that, and then I'd get up, and I'd do whatever. I'd watch telly, or I'd, you know, do whatever else, get dressed, and go out, go shopping, whatever. And... Um, then at some stage, I wouldn't really have dinner. I'd have bits and pieces to eat, not a lot because of my throat being so bad. And um, then at some stage during the day, then I'd do my bandages at whatever time, and that takes about two hours. Depends on who's doing it. My mum's well used to doing it by now, so it takes her only about an hour, an hour and a half. Depends. If it's a nurse, it could take two hours or more. Like. I hate doing her dressings because I know, I see then up in front of me how sore she is. And I, you know, I think, God, if only I could swap places with her, if only she could have, I mean, I've had a bit of a life, you know, if only she could have a bit of a life, if I could only just take that skin and she have mine just to swap for even a little while, it would be great. But as I say, I switch off. I don't think about it. You know, at times when things would get bad, you would, you would turn to prayer. And, and my own belief is that it does does help. Your prayers are answered and it certainly has been answered in our case with especially with Emma. You know, there were times when she was very bad and her her health was very poor and her skin was very poor and it just seemed to get better and you know, it's not perfect but it will never be perfect but and she has her bad times but feet is very important, yeah. Yeah. To all of us, yeah. Before she was born, or before any of this occurred, I say both our faiths would have been very, very strong. We would have strong beliefs, and it probably reinforced um, our faith when she was born that perhaps she was a gift from God, and um, she was given to us to look after. 
I've always put on a brave face and smile for everyone I've met. I've always said, oh, no, I'm fine, you know. I I don't like to complain. I don't want people feeling sorry for me and going, you know, on the poor guy, you know. I'd like people to see me as, um, you know, being happy and being, you know, herself and being independent and being who I am, not them seeing me for someone who has a disability. I know sometimes it's very difficult for me to step back and let her do what she wants to do. Yet I give her her space. I think it's important to give her her space. She needs time for herself and she needs to be given the chance to try to be independent. Sometimes I feel I just have to let her see and find out for herself and make her mistakes. You know, everybody has to make mistakes in life. That's how we learn. And sometimes you just have to let go. In the last few years, we've been learning to let go, but it's very difficult. I find it very hard to step back and not get involved because I suppose I've been involved for so many years and have had an input for so many years. Sometimes it's hard to, to take a backward step and just let her get on with it, you know? Like, I'm physically not like everyone else. I'm, like, when you look at me, like, I'm visually not like everyone else, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm the same as everyone else. You know, I like to do the same things and I react like other people would to things, you know. And in ways I am the same and in ways I'm not. It is always a worry, yeah. Because you, you don't know what's around the corner. But you have, to, you have to take each day as it comes. And... We don't think about the future, really, no. I suppose. We, we live for today and enjoy her for what we have the time we have with her and please God we'll have a lot more time with her but you really can't think of the future because we don't know what's around the corner but we, we're glad we have her and we're glad that she's succeeded in what she's doing. I think I've always been very positive about it. I've never said, I've never felt sorry for myself and God and said God, you know, I don't want to be here kind of thing. I've always, you know, enjoyed life. I've always been happy with what I was doing. I've always wanted what I've ever wanted to do, you know. I've gone to college and moving up here to Dublin. And what, I'm doing everything that everyone else does, and I'm very happy with that. I have no choice, really. I, I can't change the way I am, so I have no choice but to be happy. And... Often I, I, you know, I just say, why us? And a lot of times, you know, when I see... Um, Sometimes, if I was in the travel agent and I see girls, say, her age coming in and they're booking holidays to go off, say, maybe four or five of them go off on holidays to Spain or Italy or wherever, and I, I remember the last time I, I saw them and I just said, God, if only Emma could do that, you know. You know, I just feel, why should she have to suffer this? Why? And why, you know, some people get a kind of a break from it or kind of go into remission from problems, say, whatever problem you might have. You might get a couple of years remission of a break. But this is unending. There is no break from it. It goes from one day to the next and there is no end to it. And you just cannot let it get to. Some people say you've been, you're specially chosen. I don't believe that. I just think it was just one of those things that happen and you just have to learn to accept it. 
I'd always be worried, you know, in the future that I would get worse. I'd, I'd hate to get any worse. You know, I was a lot better when I was younger and I have deteriorated over the years and I would hate to deteriorate even more. I suppose I know a lot of people that say I have a... My brother has a child that's autistic, so I know other people that have problems and have sufferings too, and I know that we're not the only ones. That's the only thing I can say that kind of can console us or make it seem a little bit easier. And I try to say, you know, there are people maybe out there even worse than us. It's very difficult. I am in pain every day. It is very hard to know that I have this for the rest of my life. It's going to be very hard. But still, I'm, I'm happy as well in ways. You know, I'm doing everything I do want to do. So I'm happy and yet I'm suffering. <laughs> so, yeah, I have I've done everything I want to do. But yeah, it's hard. Definitely. For sure. It's my life, so I'm used to it.